0: Hey everyone, and welcome to Talk Talks. I'm Anthony Burton, and today we have a recording of Talk Magazine's launch party. Talk Magazine is an extension of Talk, the series of anthologies published by Diaspora Dialogues that spotlight new and emerging voices of writers. At the launch party, which was on June 21st this past year, we held a panel of Diaspora Dialogues alumni and writers to discuss the question, how has the literary scene in Canada changed over the recent years? Our panelists chatted about representation and what exactly it is to call oneself an author. The panel's moderator, Aparta Bhandari, is an arts and life reporter in Toronto. She's also published in a variety of Canadian media, including the CBC, the Toronto Star, the Globe and Mail, and the Walrus. Her areas of interest and expertise lie at the intersections of gender, culture, and identity. I'll let her take it away, and she'll introduce the panel of speakers for the episode. Hope you enjoy.
1: Uh, we have a lovely um, group of panelists over here to talk about this really interesting conversation that's really been in the news quite a bit about um, the literary scene and how it's changed since you know they first entered it, how it's succeeding, how it's failing, and what we have to do to make the scene more inclusive and representative of our social fabric. So I'm going to do um, some quick panellist bios, and then each panellist will uh, present a little bit of their works. So if you could just introduce your work a little bit before you present it, uh, and then after that we'll have some question and answers. Uh, at some point, um, I have a bunch, but at some point I'm going to open it up to the audience and you'll get a chance to ask your questions deep burning questions. Um, So we have, first of all, on the very right, Rima. Soon after graduating from law school, Rima Patel started writing her debut novel, which draws on her experience working in India's nonprofit sector. In 2013, an excerpt from her book won the University of Toronto's School of Continuing Studies Penguin Random House Creative Writing Award and was published in a chapbook called Three. She was a member of Diaspora Dialogue's long-form mentorship program in 2016, and her yet-as-untitled novel will be published by McClellan and Stewart in 2020. Exciting. Um, Then we have Augusto Bitter, a Venezuelan-born actor, mover, and writer based in Toronto. Uh, He has a specialist in drama, theatre, and performance studies from the University of Toronto, and was named one of NOW Magazine's Top 10 Theatre Artists of 2017. He has trained with Teatro del Radici's 29 International Laboratory, Factory Theatre's Mechanicals, and Canada's National Voice Intensive. Augusto is a part of Aluna Theatre's Interpretation Lab, a member of Buddies in Bad Times Salon Group, and a Youth Link Artist at Soul Pepper Theatre Company. Select performance credits include The Monument, Lear, El Retorno, I Return, Rope, Running Out, and our town, and your solo show, Chico Chicho, pre- Chicho sorry, oh, doing so good <laughs> until then. Um, his solo show, Chicho, premieres at Theater Pasmorei in March 2019. Then we have Aisha Sasha John, dancer, choreographer, and author of the Griffin Poetry Prize shortlisted collection, I Have to Live, published by McClelland and Stewart in 2017. Her solo performance, The Aisha of IS, premiered at the Whitney Museum in 2017, and had its Canadian premiere at Montréal Arts Interculturel in April 2018. In addition to her solo work, she's choreographed, performed, and curated as a member of the collective Wives from 2015 to 2017. Aisha's other books include The Shining, Material, and Thou, finalists for both the Trillium and Relit Book Awards. And in t- last year, Aisha's video work was commissioned by Art Metropole as part of Let's Understand What It Means to Be Here Together, which was a week long public art residency during which Aisha and four collaborators made performances in Toronto Union Station's West Wing. That must have been an experience and a half. It was. <laughs> um, Aisha has an MFA in Creative Writing from the University of Guelph, a BA in African Studies from the University of Toronto, and training in various Congolese, Ethiopian and Caribbean dances, as well as Western contemporary and improvisation techniques. And finally, we have Mia Herrera. Uh, your short stories and feature articles and reviews have appeared in a vari- various online and print publications, including CG Magazine, Live in Limbo, Hearthouse Review, and Talk writing the New Toronto Book 7. She's a recipient of the Youth Scholarship Award from Tatamagush Centre and Writers Trust Fund Scholarship. Mia was a participant in Diaspora Dialogue's Short Form Mentorship Program in 2011 and Long Form Mentorship Program in 2013. Mia's debut novel, Shade, was released in May 2016 by Inanna Publications, and she's currently the Ontario Regional Representative for the Writers' Union of Canada. Welcome all. Thank you so much. So Rima,
2: what are you gonna start us off with? Okay, uh, so I'm gonna read you a little bit from the beginning of my novel. Um, my novel, just to give you a bit of background, um, is set in modern day Mumbai. It's told from the point of view of Rocky, who is a young woman working as an admin assistant at a human rights law organization. And she had a bit of a tumultuous childhood. She grew up on the streets was a bit in conflict with the law and um, eventually was mainstreamed, air quotes, uh, and is now in this sort of soul-sucking, boring, lonely existence. And uh, everything is turned upside down when uh, a young foreign intern from Canada shows up at this organization trying to save the world and they form an unlikely friendship and chaos inevitably ensues and I'm gonna read it just from the beginning. Apart from the occasional shouts of lovesick drunks and the shrill squeaks of horny rats, Barambada slum gets so quiet after midnight the silence is deafening. Most nights I lie awake, tormented by the dead air and the emptiness of my one-room hutment, drifting into punctured sleep by two or three in the morning. Loud, constant noise helps me relax it means someone is always there. Mam says that I can't sleep in silent situations because the script of the street is difficult to undo, whatever that means. Barampada sprawls over seven acres in Bombay, an island city flooded with too many people with too big dreams. In the evening, the slum gets rowdy. Oh. Sorry. In the evening, the slum gets rowdy. Women are clanging pots and pans, shouting at their husbands, who in turn shout back. Boys rev motorbikes and girls giggle. Someone's always chasing a goat. And when India wins a cricket match, firecrackers flare and explode in the lanes like machine guns. By midnight, though, the people of Barampada retreat inside, switch off their television sets, and go quiet until dawn. If I had the secret weapons that important people do, like loud English or proper Hindi, I'd instruct the nearby Garib Nawaz Masjid to keep the call to prayer going all night. Rocky has to sleep, they would shrug if anyone complained about their six-hour-long azan. Last night, noisy rains crashed down on my leaky tin roof, so I caught a bit more rest than normal. The steady drip-drip of water in the corner of my hut filled up half a plastic bucket until the monsoon clouds parted around dawn. On this muggy monsoon morning in July, I yawn as I weave through swarms of people heading to Bandra train station, where the local trains rattle in and out of the platforms, crawling up and down the railway lines, gulping and spitting out bodies as they go.
1: Okay, thank you, Rocky. Thanks. Oh, sorry, Rima, you're not Rocky. Um, <laughs> uh,
3: Augusta.
4: Sure. Um, I'm going to read. A little section uh, from my uh, show called Chicho, which is a solo show. Um, and it's about uh, a, what I call a man boy, it's kind of like an overgrown child, um, named Chicho, who's having an identity crisis over being um, queer, Catholic, and Venezuelan. Um, but at the same time, it's comparing that identity crisis to the actual socioeconomic human rights crisis in Venezuela and whether or not uh, all the layers of privilege that Chicho actually has to be able to have an identity crisis in the first place. Um, So this is a section near the beginning of the show, um, and it's a little bit of uh, storytelling. Can you still be un hombre hecho y derecho even if you're gay or queer? In English, the phrase, or blessing, I guess, translates to a straight, well-made man. It's said to you daily by older Catholic Venezuelan women like Mi Mami. It's no surprise that the phrase appeals to her as an engineer. It's essentially a design specification. Heterosexuality is beautiful because it's precise, and I want it to be beautiful. Okay. Grade 12, Calgary, Alberta, Texas of the North. It's the first day of school, and I'm sitting at the registration desk, and suddenly the room temperature drops. There, right in front of me, is the most beautiful girl I've ever seen in my entire life, Ingrid the Norwegian exchange student. Ingrid, the Norwegian ice princess of the North. She has beautiful blonde hair and beautiful blue eyes. I'm walking her up to her locker and have the brilliant idea to ask her out on my first formal North American date. Two immigrants, one date, one chance for a lifetime of interracial love and companionship. I offer to pick her up at her after school ESL class because I just got my driver's license and I'm ready to ride. So I take mommy's tiny black hatchback car that I called My Little Shoe, which looking back is probably the gayest name I could have ever given an automobile. (laughs) I take her to the best Italian restaurant in Calgary called Cibo, spelt with a C, not a C. You can actually tell just by the actual name, it's not even actually run by actual Italian people because Cibo actually just means food in Italian. It was perfect, but it turns out that the wait time for a table was two and a half hours. Two and a half fucking hours! So I take her down the street to this other, cheaper, actually Italian restaurant with an equally original name. Buongiorno. <laughs> Ingrid sits there eating her linguini, and then, oh, then, she has the audacity to ask to split the bill. I mustered up all my straightness to say, mm, I got this. I know. I didn't even have to speak Spanish to her, and I was still sexy. I tell her I have one last place to take her to. Chicks love surprises. I read that in men's health once. I take her to this lookout where you can see the adorable, tiny, ghost town downtown Calgary skyline. We get there, and all the other cars are literally fogged up from teenagers making out, like in the American movies. I panicked, so I suggested we step outside for a romantic walk in the night, and two minutes and 36 seconds later, we're back inside the car. Turns out it was too cold for her outside. The Norwegian ice princess of the north was too cold. She had so many contradictions, I decided I was going to marry her. (laughs) So I'm driving her back home and I'm going real fast in my little shoe because I'm real nervous. We get to her house and it's a beautiful, giant midtown Calgary mansion fit for a Norwegian oil company CEO dad and his beautiful Aryan family. I turn off my little shoe's engine. She turns to me, she smiles, time stops. She goes in for a solid high school hug. I turn sideways, my lips bunching into a pucker, but my arms flail and I hit her in the face. (laughs) I hit her in the face. She laughs, her laugh sticks to the roof of her mouth. It's not the kind of laugh me mommy would laugh, She was laughing in English, even though it wasn't her first language. So we hug, quickly. She walks into her beautiful, giant, midtown Calgary mansion, fit for a Norwegian oil company CEO dad and his beautiful Aryan family. And I am never to see her again.
1: I think it's safe to say we're all going to watch Chicho in March at Theater Pass Uh Okay, Aisha.
3: Um, yeah, so I'm going to read a poem from um, my forthcoming collection, whenever that is. Um, I just released something last year, so. Um, but I wanted to say that my show, The Aisha of Is, is going to be at Summerworks this August, oh, so you can look forward to that. Yeah. Um, this is called Faith. Faith emerges, he says, and is experienced as a gestational event in Pisces. Complication, confusion, pain, faith. For example, his body stinks. For example, the blood inside souring. A man drinks at night and the next day I can smell him in waves. You don't stand on the same faith twice. Supposed to be lying down or sitting to sit life down and see it sorted. But this is the gift of the creator, large and noble hands. We need to do away with the literalness of suffering. The dream you have where there's so much thick, oily pasta falling down into a platter the length of a very long sidewalk, and you weren't allowed to eat it. Even though you walked the whole length of the festival and had to see the pasta flowing, Sometimes we don't want to be around ourselves or in time. I didn't know anyone when I came here, and I walked around the library and streets, and was unattached, effervescent, bored. I spend a lot of time alone still, and then wake up, and there's two fish swimming. Therefore, you have to pray in rounds. I died this winter, and then something about love, 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 mirrors. I want to go where I can buy something old with a feeling on it. I want to put something old onto my soft body and then tenderize the wayward parts of my coiffure. When the sweat came, the dew got undid because I danced for you. I call that standing up and falling, drinking coffee and crying. I had to look at myself. I had to wonder. You are the longer. I am the lady. You are the younger, I am the baby. But I didn't know how to think alone and what to do with the fact of the borders they call body. Walking to the place where they sell beer on holidays and purchasing one called July. Because when I cry, I am able enough not to seek anything better than the bad I feel. The song animates what's stale and sad in me. So I have in the place of false fraternity an internal, impermanent sadness. At the end of the dream, my mom and her friends in semi-see-through clothing, thin they were, very, and chic. At the end of the parade, that was them there. I was envious. I believe they got to eat the pasta, but not me. Enough imagination to take your life non-literally. Have that. Your problem is your wealth, the hardness, the sadness, the lake, the cat wants to go outside and I wanna go outside too, bye. It is special, it is deep, it's eternal, it is fleeting and the pain that keeps swirling up and stiffening and then softening and then stiffening and then. Thank Thank you.
5: Thank you. So I'll be reading an excerpt from my novel, Shade, which tells the story of a young woman named Benny, who goes to the Philippines to meet her father, who she's lived apart from for quite some time. The scene I'm reading is near the beginning of the novel, and it actually starts in the small town of Georgina, which is an hour and a half north of here. And Benny is meeting her longtime boyfriend, Tom. So Tom's been acting strangely lately, and Benny suspects he'll finally be proposing that day, which she's very excited about because she's lived in Georgina her whole life, born and raised there, works at a stable but dead-end job, and she's ready for the next chapter. Tom asked to meet me at the nearby Tim Hortons. To be fair, I didn't expect my proposal to come over coffee in Timbits, but I'm willing to overlook the less-than-romantic environment. Tom's a practical man. He's already there by the time I arrive, sitting on a picnic bench outside nearest to his white BMW. I look at the food he's ordered with an appraising eye. You upsize my French vanilla. What's the special occasion? I crack a smile, but Tom looks preoccupied. Thank you for coming, Benny. What is this, an interview? I ask, trying to calm the fluttering in my stomach. Relax, I think. This is Tom. You're ready for this. I sit across from him, and he takes my hand. I'm sorry, I don't know how to begin, he says. I know I've been acting strange lately, but we've been dating for a really long time. He looks into my eyes and the intensity of his gaze makes me certain the statement will be followed by a ring. I'm already nodding my head. Yes. Tom's earnest words are followed by a, but we just won't work out. I stop nodding and stare. You know how traditional my parents are, Benny, and I'm their only child. Considering my age, my parents want me to start getting serious about my future. It's important for my family that my future wife be Chinese. You know that, right? It's important for them, it's important for our company, and I love you. But it's important for me. I think of Tom's mother, who often comments on how close I look to being Chinese. After three years, I thought her remarks were all in good fun. The idea that my race is a point of contention is news to me. We're too old to play around anymore, Benny. Play around. The words strike me. I think of all the nights we've spent together, nights and days that seem like pretty serious signs of commitment to me. I have fancied the way we get up together in the morning, get ready for the day, the way I imagined we'd be getting ready for the day together every day for the rest of our lives. Benny, you're hurting me, Tom says, and only then do I realize I'm squeezing his hand. I ease my grip. You're joking, right? This is some kind of sick joke, right? Tom bites his lip. Come on, Benny, you've always been so reasonable. You can't believe how much I love you, but I want to start taking on more of my father's responsibilities. His ambition, his drive, the grounded, level-headed honesty I so much appreciated. Okay, so you're telling me that the only way for you to take on a share of your father's company is to break up with me? Essentially, yes, he says. Okay, I must be missing something. Your parents are telling you to break up with me? Not really. It's understood, he says. It's understood? Did I miss the memo? Come on, Benny, he says. Don't come on, Benny, me. We've clearly missed a few key fucking points in the past few years, haven't we? Tom flinches. Why are you acting like this, he asks, looking around. There are other people here, Benny. He takes my silent seething as compliance and nods at the children on the picnic bench behind me. There are kids here. Kids. He and I were supposed to have some kids of our own. We wanted two, a boy and a girl. His ease in discussing the future showed a maturity I hadn't encountered in other men before he and I started dating, but his consideration for the children behind me and complete lack of regard for the children we planned infuriates me even more. Don't fucking tell me to keep it down, I say, raising my voice a notch higher. What was the past three years then? A joke? A practice run? Clearly it was a waste of time. A waste of time? Tom flushes a red that colors his neck and cheeks in uneven blotches. Christ, Benny, does everything have to be a process for you? Are you kidding me? Mr. Analytical is talking to me about process, I ask. You're the one who color codes his goddamn underwear drawers. And just for the record, our relationship wasn't a process, but we sure as hell had a plan. Tom stands up and places his sunglasses on with a deliberation that only makes me angrier. I should have listened to my parents when they said I was wasting my time with you, he says. I don't know why I was so worried to have this conversation in the first place. Good riddance. No, good riddance to you, I yell after him. He continues walking to his car. Tom, don't you walk away from me. He steps into his car. Tom, he leaves. I stand up and give the bench a good kick, ignoring the open-mouthed stares from the people around me. I yank my car door open, throw my bag inside, and turn the car on with as much force as though the key were stuck. Navigating out of the parking lot, I notice a brown-skinned, pimply-faced teen yelling at me from the sidewalk. I slow the car and roll down my window. What? Your high beams are on, he says. I struggle to find my high beam switch and turn it off, only after turning on and off my front and rear windshield wipers, too. Thanks. He rolls his eyes and hitches his backpack over his shoulder. Learn how to drive or go back to the dragon center, chink, he says.
1: Okay, so um, as I mentioned, we're, we're supposed to be discussing how the literary scene has changed since you first entered and whether it's succeeding, failing, what we can do to make the space more inclusive and representative of our social fabric and i think this is a conversation that i've been hearing for at least since i've come to canada about 20 years ago so i'm kind of curious to actually hear um from each of you how uh, maybe just uh, just 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 on to begin on a hopeful note how did you first decide to sort of okay this is it i'm gonna do it i'm gonna i'm gonna write something or create something what was the first impulse of i'm gonna i'm gonna you know put something out there in the world because that's one of the most difficult things as an artist. So perhaps we can start with Rima and then make our way down.
2: Um, I like to think it happened sort of organically um, because I was so bored with what I was doing. Uh, so I, was, I, I went to law school and I was articling um, before I got called to the bar and it was midway through my articling year where I just would come home just so sad. Um, and I thought to just take a creative writing course at UFT ContinuEd um, Department, and uh, I took a class called Intro to the Novel, and I just loved it. And it was, I was able to express myself in a way that I would never been able to. And I realized there were all these stories inside of me that needed to come out. And um, I really just went with it. And I don't know where along the way um, I decided to put it out into the world. I think it just it just grew because I, I loved it the more that I did it. Gusto?
4: Um, uh, Chicho is the, is the uh, biggest thing, I guess, scale-wise, mm-hmm. that I've ever written to date. Um, and it started in, while well, I was in theater school at the University of Toronto. Um, and I had finished my performance training, and I still had a year to finish other courses and other credits. And I decided to take a playwriting class on a whim because um, I knew I wanted to create my own work, but I knew I needed some other foundations and tools. Um, but it also came out of a need of, of being in theatre school and being bilingual and being from Venezuela and being non-white. You get to, especially in an acting class, you work with a lot of Shakespeare and Chekhov yeah. and George Bernard Shaw, which uh, they don't uh, really exist in my body in any sort of way. Um, <laughs> And, and I had to find for myself the kind of theater that I wanted to create that mm-hmm. kind of um, took all this Eurocentric training that I had been given and mm-hmm. trying to find through other different community organizations and other companies like Aluna, mm-hmm. how I can then combine that and smash it together in really interesting ways with um, Spanish and what the Spanglish... The Spang, Spanglish Um, gives to my kind of theater but also what Latin American theater which is so different than Mm -hmm. North American theater or European theater, how that can um, inform my practice as well as the other stuff that I've learned
3: Mm -hmm. I've been writing since I was a kid and uh, I used to be an actor actually so it's really young and um, like when I went to, I I did undergrad here I, I grew up in Vancouver but I came here to uh, do African studies at U of T, and even then, I, I was like, well, my grades don't really matter because I'm going to do an MFA. Like I, so I, I had the plan to write. Mm. Mm-hmm.
5: Similar to Aisha, I uh, was writing since I was a child. So I always loved telling stories, and I try to bind you know, make magazines and bind them and sell them to my family (laughs) for 10 cents a copy. (laughs) Um, So, I always loved to write. Um, When I graduated from university, I took English Lit just because I loved to read. Everyone was asking me what my second teachable was. I was like, I really want to be a teacher. So I didn't have a second teachable. I kind of got into administrative work and I just wanted to stay creative Um, and want to stay in the community. Um, It was interesting because I went to U of T for English Lit and I remember in my last year, I happened to be walking by one of the Toronto Public Libraries and they had a reading on that night. And I went in and it was a DD reading and I took one of the flyers from there and I kind of hung on to it. Um, I graduated in 2010 and I kind of kept checking in on DD over the year, but it wasn't until 2011 when I was really missing that scene and really missing writing uh, that I uh, checked out DD again and I actually signed up for the short-form mentorship program and that was a great experience Um, after that I, I decided I really wanted to stay in the writing space and I was lucky enough to get into the DD long-form mentorship program and it kind of snowballed into this book that I had been writing at the time. So it all kind of happened organically from there, but it all started with that passion for writing and then all of a sudden it was just a series of events happening upon the right place at the right time, finding the right program, finding the right people.
1: So, um, you know,
5: starting with the successes, or, or so the positives,
1: I guess, I mean, I remember when I first came to Canada, this was around 1998, and at that time, you know, Shamsul Vidurai's Funny Boy was kind of making waves, and for me, it was really interesting that, oh, there can be this this book about a Sri Lankan queer uh, boy growing up, you know, kind of a thing, and I was really quite intrigued. So, I was, I'm kind of curious, as, as I mean, Augusto, you sort of mentioned a little bit about from Shakespeare to, to you know going to Aluna, but when you when you all of you when you first sort of started, was was there that sense of did you have a sense of it's it's diverse or did you have a, I mean what what was your feeling about what the scene was like at that time when you when you all started Rima? I
2: had I had no idea what any scene was at the time because it was just not a part of my world. Um, but I did, um, speaking of Sham, who was my diaspora dialogues mentor, and also in 1998, I read Funny Boy, and it was my favorite book. So I did grow up reading books that I really enjoyed, and they happened to be books that told stories um, about people of color and. Um, you know, women and and um, not nece- they weren't necessarily the things that um, we were studying in school, but I'll, I'll also say I went to a feminist school. So <laughs> we were reading a lot of great stuff back then. But yeah, I mean, I think with my own book, there was a sense of, I don't know if anyone's gonna really like this, but me and maybe my family and my friends. <laughs> who are
1: here to support you <laughs> who today. Who are here. <laughs> yes! yes.
2: <laughs> um, and, and, I, and I wrote the book thinking, this probably won't get published, no one else will really want to read it, um, I'm just going to do it for me, I'm going to do it for me. Um, and so that's what I did, but I think, I wonder if maybe, I didn't study English Lit, and I didn't, I didn't really run in creative circles, and so um, that wasn't there, but also I think I had that feeling that maybe um, this wouldn't happen for me because I just, I wasn't seeing people like me hmm. um, getting published. Um, and now I am, and I think, and you know, I see all of you guys and a bunch of writers um, whose works are getting out there, and I think let's say you know I was born 20 years later, I think I might have had an earlier entry into writing, uh, or at mm. least publishing than, than now. Not that I regret anything. But. <laughs> okay How
1: still?
4: Um, I. Really, still know very little about the Canadian literary industry. In yes, Yes, but We've also talked about how the theater how scene. It's, yeah, it's very they're very parallel mm-hmm. kind of uh, industries and very mm-hmm. similar in terms of the issues and and mm-hmm. successes that they've both kind of faced. Uh, but when I s- started, which I'm gonna gauge as kind of graduating and, and leaving the program and starting to make my own work kind of independently. Um, I found a home pretty quickly in the independent theatre community. Hmm. um, Because it also expands um, the form of theatre that you can create, the forms of storytelling, Hmm. um, and in terms of diverse voices of all those different layers of what diversity can mean. Hmm. Um, And still, so I knew that that was a great um, uh, avenue for me in the independent theatre community, but it's, it's so small, still, relative to... Uh, the budgets that the general theatres have and these theatres that have been around for uh, realistically not that long of a time. The Canadian theatre industry is fairly new. It's been, at least in Toronto, it's only been active since maybe the 70s. Um, But there's still these huge theatres that are producing um, uh, primarily uh, white Canadian work. Uh, But I see it slowly creeping into those theatres as well from... Uh, the independent theater community that keeps growing. Um, so that's the way I'm gauging it.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Aisha. Yeah, I think when I was younger, I really looked to the to the states. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been asked about like my beginnings, and uh, Amiri Baraka was very formative for me, the poet, Amer- U.S. poet. Um, and but I, so I I don't. But when I was in undergrad, um, I took a course called Caribbean Woman Writers. Mm. And I read Dionne Brand's work yes. in that class. And I couldn't even like believe it. Like, I, it was so good. Like, I couldn't, like, it just, and I mean, she's my editor, she was my thesis advisor. I studied, like, I, she's my friend. Like, I have a relationship to her. And I think that as time goes on, I'm like more and more, I just feel more and more like lucky t- that an artist who I admire so greatly happens to live in my city. Because it, it's not just that she's here. I, lo- I love her work, like regardless, in that sort of kinship. So I, I, f- I do feel grateful in, in that regard. But I think generally, like as an artist, because I'm a dancer as well, I, I I still don't feel like I have a lot of, um like peers or like role models like I do as a poet like but um I still look to the states actually in terms of artists who are in terms of like black choreographers and like so I think because of the internet (laughs) and like I don't know what I would do without the communities that are available through the internet like if I had to rely only on who's here I I think I would feel like poor to be honest like um I've i continue to um relate and I've traveled like for my work and so I I meet people um abroad and that's been like vital for me in terms of community so yeah yeah.
1: Mia you've you've talked about the I mean you talked about walking in that diaspora dialogues Mm -hmm. reading and and so the existence of of programs like this to
5: absolutely so I think um with regards to the writing space in general, and that idea of Canadian literature still seems relatively new. So the diversity in that space, before I actually started to get involved in it myself, I, I wasn't even, quite aware of what was around in it. So even studying English literature in university, um, there wasn't a lot of diversity in the literature that I was reading. And maybe it was because of the courses I was taking, but really the the most diverse literature that I found in my university experience was through an Asian American writer's course. And then Mm -hmm. it's because it had to be. Um, But other than that, the books that we were being exposed to, even in high school or university, they weren't that diverse. I do find that um, finding these communities has been really important. And these communities, like Diaspora Dialogues itself has been so integral to creating the diverse space in literature where more and more as I get involved, I'm able to meet more diverse groups and more diverse writers. Um, But that's something that I've seen increasing over time. And I do think that it is something that people are trying to address because even with the Writers' Union of Canada, for example, if you look at their membership the membership itself is not that diverse. And there's actually a standing item at a lot of our meetings asking the question how do we reach out to these different groups where are these people meeting things like festival literary diversity didn't exist you know 10 years ago so it's diversifying but it it wasn't necessarily the most diverse space before it's nice to see the changes that organizations like dd are creating Mm
1: -hmm. so these uh, so like i said these are conversations that i've been hearing for the last 20 years that have been here i mean you were uh, looking to omari i think um, uh, in my case, when I was doing English literature at UFT, I had one course that we had Toni Morrison. Um, so we were studying her works. and then there was one professor who was you know who was who had a sort of South Asian and post-colonial theory, that kind of a thing. and, and that was one course at the UFT. So um, it sounds as if you know these these challenges, these whatever it is, it it sounds that these are ongoing. and we have had recently, you know fairly, Loud voices, uh, certainly internationally, but also in Canada. On the literary scene, we have, you know, Ronaldo Walcott talking about what's going on with CanLit, Lit. Um, and on the theater scene, you know, just a couple of years ago, Can Stage So White and whatnot. So, I mean, you know, could you talk a little bit about the challenges that you see, Rima? I think you were talking about issues of representation and not seeing yourself as somebody who wasn't part of, who hasn't studied this per se. Is that something that that you thought about initially when when you were creating your work or or as you have been on this journey?
2: I mean, yeah. If I think about why I was maybe a bit hesitant to start earlier or even really take myself more seriously as a writer, I think it definitely would have to do with just feeling not good enough or or just not seeing, again, seeing people like me um, in bookshops. Um,
1: and when you say like you, I'm curious because there's lots of South Asian writers who mm-hmm. are quite, you know,
2: people like will me. point
1: to Rushdie or Arundhati or, or something. Mm-hmm. So what do you mean by like me?
2: Um, I, th- I mean, I think being young had a had a lot to do with it. Um, I look at Salman Rushdie, um, and that that's someone whose level of, I think, literary genius just seemed. It's so inaccessible to a lot of people. Hmm. Um, that wasn't the kind of; those weren't the kind of books that someone like me would be able to produce. Um, full disclosure: I've tried to read uh, *Satanic Verses* like six times, and I just can't do it. <laughs> but I do love some of his other stuff. Um, and so I think, yeah. So when I say like me, um, for me it was yes, you know, being a daughter of immigrants. Um, yes, there's off the top of my head, like Jhumpa Lahiri, who writes mm-hmm. about being the daughter of South Asian immigrants. But I guess at the same time, it was just feeling as though it just it just couldn't possibly be an option. No one around me was doing it. Um, no one was really writing around me.
1: Mm. Augusto, how what um, are some of the conversations going on?
4: Yeah. Uh, uh, because Canadian theater, as I mentioned, is so new relative to other continents and other industries diff- around the world, and like the U.S. too, it's newer relative to that. Um, there, Canada has uh, an extensive uh, history of identity plays. There's so, so many plays about what it means to be Canadian and what uh, what it means to immigrate to Canada or to be born in Canada. And there's, and sometimes because of just the sheer Mass of so many works about that, it can get a a bit competitive. I've I've found hmm. um, in terms of like, no, this is Canadian work, or this is Canadian work, or what does um, Indigenous theatre look like, or what does is there one thing for Canadian theatre? So there's no, um, it there still feels like there's no actual anchor per se. Um, which can be really fruitful because it just means that a bunch of new work can be created and it can experiment and you can kind of do anything. Mm. Um, but at the same time, it can also feel a little competitive and a little everybody's, everybody's voices trying to get heard, rightfully mm. so, because there are still systematic power imbalances that make us as people of color or queer people or other able people trying to compete for attention even with each other.
3: Mm. I don't remember exactly what the question is, Neither but I do, do have something I to point. say. <laughs> um, I, th- I think that... Um, I have, like, three things to say. One is that, on one hand, I do feel um, like I have been blessed by having these, like, literary mothers, such as Dion and Norbese, like, um, like poets. Mm. The other hand... Um, I'm also grateful for like how the language has changed and how the lexicon has changed and how we talk about privilege and it's a known thing that appropriation is a problem. When I was in grad school, we were having these like ridiculous arguments where white men were like, why can't I write from like, so like the conversations have shifted. Um, However, I'm also very frustrated by this word "diverse" and these ideas of diversity, because they center whiteness, and mm-hmm. I don't use that language myself, even though I understand what people are saying when they're when they're saying that. Mm-hmm. Um, as a as a performer, this mm-hmm. is actually a better uh, a more coherent example. Um, as a dancer who did playwright units when I thought I wanted to be a playwright, I experienced this thing where I couldn't be seen, where the kind of work that I had envisioned, this sort of like more um, experimental body. Now I just do it as a dancer, but like I was in Nightwood and I was like, I was encouraged to tell these stories. I felt like there's a sort of a like a, like a real poverty of imagination for what it's po- like, how racialized peoples, how our work can be and how broad and outrageous and so Sometimes I think these conversations around diversity are like I mean often they're problematic but one of the ways in which I think they're problematic is they kind of like mask this like homogeneity mm. of style like things aren't actually diverse like if that makes any sense yeah. so um and then I also think about the fact that like you know like I have a career now so people know who, know, know who I am so uh, the way that I'm treated and how I'm talked to has changed. But when I was younger, as a poet in the city, when I mentioned that I was a poet, so you do spoken word, so you do spoken word, <laughs> it was like unthinkable that I wrote, and it made me so angry. So mm-hmm. yes, on one hand, I was like reading a lot of things, and I knew that Dion was there and Norbese was there, so there were like Toronto writers black West Indian Toronto woman writers that I, like, I had access to, but I also couldn't even be seen as a writer for the longest time. Mm. So, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I don't know if that's changed because I'm too visible to know. Like I'm not anonymous anymore. Uh, Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So when the question came up about how the literary scene has changed, that was one of the questions I had. I'm like, well, I won't know, like, unless I went in like disguise, <laughs> <laughs> like I'll, I'll never know.
1: But you f- yeah. but you feel that on, on in the space as a dancer that that sense
3: of I think what I'm saying generally hmm. and I don't want to complicate it is that part of my experience is being underestimated in terms of like the breadth of material I'm capable of or that's the particular kind of oppression that I've found the most vexing hmm. and it's also, maybe something that I still experience, even with a career. But I, but I also understand. But it, and it's gendered, obviously. Mm. Like there's something about um, working at the edges and trying t- and being innovative and and caring about form in certain ways. And if you put that on top of being like a woman, and on top of being racialized, it's like oh, it's like there's fear. Mm. There's um, it's like too much difference. Mm. Um. That's my experience. Okay, yeah.
1: so Mia, um, do you have some thoughts? I mean, what was interesting to me about your particular story that you chose was the characters, and and you know, typically when we think about these sort of scenes, we think about these interracial characters, and it's white and somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was really interesting that it's a Chinese person, a Filipino person, and the kind of racial tension that's over there. And I'm kind of curious as to uh, what you feel. You know, the stories are being told, and where your story fit in, and all of this.
5: Yeah, I guess. Um, similar to what Aisha was saying earlier, I've, I do feel like I've struggled a little bit um, ever since my books launched with that idea of the word diversity to a certain extent. Um, it's easy to say, but I feel like it's, it's difficult to explain, and um, particularly in the writing space I think there's that search for diversity, but oftentimes um, I worry personally, as an author, if I'm just chosen because I'm a visible minority, for example. Mm. Um, When I read this scene in my book, it's interesting because I've actually read it a couple of times at a few different panels. A few people have said that, like, oh, like Asian people can be racist to each other. Um, (laughs) That's so odd. And it's just, and it's odd because when I wrote it, I, when I wrote the book, I actually just wrote it more, um, it was kind of, Therapeutic. I was just kind of getting certain experiences or thoughts or, you know, just certain things out, but putting it into fiction. And I wasn't thinking about the race of a Chinese person and a Filipino person, though obviously it's playing on some very specific dynamics there. And that became the prominent thing about what was going on, even though for me personally in that scene, it was very much more relationship thing. It was, a, you know, this woman is going through a serious breakup and she's just floored and, you know, it's a lot of different layers there. So I find that having been um, a diverse writer in this space has been interesting because it does bring up a lot of questions of race, um, but then I struggle because it feels like my book is then primarily seen as a racial book or a book about immigration, which it's it's not even close to being about immigration or a book about diversity. Um, I was invited to speak on panels called um, Immigrant stories, and I was like, "Oh, I didn't know that was what my story was about." Um, so it's been a very interesting time, and I find it's it's been very challenging as well because I think that the conversation is important. I think that the topic of diversity comes up so much because it is important. But at the same time, I I personally struggle with the fear that any chair I'm sitting in is a chair that I've been chosen to sit in because. I'm a visible minority, and that's what people are looking for these days. So I've been, I haven't been—I have really found any resolution around that. It's just kind of been this uneasy, like, do I deserve to be here? Or <laughs> am I just here because I'm supposed to, like, fill a quota or something? So it's, yeah, it's been a very interesting period.
1: But I'm kind of curious. I mean, hasn't, uh, isn't this been an ongoing thing? I mean, you, you mentioned, you know, the, the, the amazing breadth we have of um, identity plays in Canada. Um, you know, and like I said, when I first came, it was Shams, funny boy that I was like, oh, okay, this is this is the Canadian literary scene. Yeah. So I'm kind of curious, I mean, is it that we're having different conversations now, as you've pointed out? I mean, you, you said that at one point, appropriation wasn't even, you know, people didn't even think about it. At least you don't have to explain those things so much anymore. And yet, Rima, I think in the conversation that we were having via email, you pointed out that, you know, the whole appropriation prize fiasco that happened, a while, <laughs> not that a long time ago is still there. So, mm-hmm. I mean, have we moved forward, really, or are we still
2: dealing with a lot of things? I mean, I think some of us have moved forward. Um, it made me kind of sad to hear, to, hear, to hear you say that, Mia, about feeling as though, do I deserve to be here, or is it just because I'm you know, racialized that I'm here? I think and, and, I, and that's a, and that's a natural feeling, and it's happened to me too, and I don't really let myself feel like that ever anymore, because I think that it it comes back to what Aisha said about centering whiteness mm. and this belief in a meritocracy that doesn't actually exist, um, and understanding that for a long time, um, because of whatever privileges. Certain people have had, certain people have had access to spaces and um, been given opportunities that a lot of us haven't. And um, the only, to me, I think the only way to really move past that is to start making, taking positive steps to counter that by actually including people and saying, now we're going to actually include people like this or people with these stories to tell. Um, because if we if publishing or any profession in in general was a meritocracy, it would look very different and it wouldn't be bloated with the same kinds of people that we that we see in them
4: um. yeah, I think a lot about the way that theater particularly is made and also about writing in general like mm. i I hesitate sometimes also to call myself a playwright it doesn't Always fit. I like. I prefer theater creator, even though that seems also kind of pretentious. But there, there's something about the kind of a connotation of the word playwright or writer, that my, uh, like my brain immediately goes to sitting at a computer or sitting in front of a notebook and writing. Mm. Um, whereas a lot of this show that I've created has been created physically or through improvisation or or through other ways of finding storytelling. So I think the progress that I see specifically in theater too is finding. Um, A lot of people talk about decolonizing their theatre practice, Mm. which is really interesting. Um, But I I think of it more of of just finding other um, ways to tell stories that aren't the same, usually um, Anglo Eurocentric ones that we've kind of inherited here in Canada, Mm. um, that we get trained in. And I have seen more and more work that does cross boundaries between theatre and poetry and dance um, that is really interesting. And I do see more and more artists of color or queer artists who are like slowly starting to make work that is not just about being queer or being artists of color, because um, I know even with this piece, I've been asked like, "Oh, are you worried that now they're going to define your work after this one thing?" Mm. I'm like, "They're bound to. Like if it's if it's this big first public thing." Um, But I'm personally kind of excited to subvert that and to do something else different and see what I can do to not... um, Because I I don't want to be bored by my own work. That's, I think, what terrifies me the most, Hmm. is making theater or making work that I don't want to see or that I think I've seen before. Um, And it's not necessarily so much about competition or challenging other forms, just something um, that feels authentic and that I ultimately, whether or not it's light or dark, that I ultimately enjoy.
3: I wanted to. Um, what you said struck a chord with me as well, and I and I'm I'm grateful that you said that. Um, and um, and thank you, Rima, for speaking to it. Is but I, I think like our feelings are real, and our feelings um, uh, are guides. The Sufis say, like the heart is the seat of intelligence, and um, I think that what you're talking about is this tension. I experience this tension. Um, Where in in the time that I've been in Toronto writing, I have witnessed change, but there's uh, resistance to change, as there is. And so my book was shortlisted for the Griffin. The Griffin uh, was won by Billy Ray Belcourt, an Indigenous writer. Um, And my mom was in the bathroom after the award was announced, and she heard someone saying like oh we know it's been three indigenous writers in a row now and sort of like talking shit and that's like I mean I'm not surprised by that but um Billy Ray's book is amazing I don't know um Jordan's book Liz Howard's book is amazing like it's in infuri- like it's so racist it's so infuriating um so yes like that happened three indigenous writers one three years in a row, but then people are talking shit in the bathroom. So that sense of like, uh, like, like that's not you it's not what you're experiencing is you're feeling that hate and 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 and, and it makes you doubt yourself. And and I think that's that's a natural reaction to like how that's part of the way white supremacy works. They whoever said that felt okay saying that in a bathroom at mm. the award. Like how disrespectful is that? Mm um so i I, yeah that's that's my anecdote (laughs) um
5: yeah yeah i think with regards to even just that question of has the the conversation changed i think it has the fact that we can sit here the five of us are on this stage having this conversation shows that the space has changed Um, and there's definitely it's true it's it's interesting these days i meet many different people but there's often two different camps um, in the writing world. There's the one camp that says, oh, of course that person just got that book published because they were a person of color or indigenous or female or, you know, anything. Um, Or there's the other camp that, um, you know, I've run into people who say, oh, I, you know, I, I don't want to talk about issues of um, color diversity because I understand as a, a white male, for example, that I have no knowledge of that and I will leave it all to you, which they're trying to be so kind. But you know, I don't know if that's productive either. So I think these conversations are happening, the conversations are changing. I think that it's interesting because this conversation is just happening at a point in time where there's just change and we're actually at a point of transition, and maybe, maybe 10, 15 years down the road, we don't have to have the conversation even about what diversity in literature means. Maybe we'll just be talking about literature, um, or you know, what the, the different meanings behind our stories, or, or you know, it, it'll just be kind of understood. Um, but I think right now we're just at a point in transition where it was never acknowledged before or spoken about, and now we're talking about it, but there's still that tension. Um, who knows what it's going to look like in the future. But I think we're definitely in a moment of change for sure.
1: Okay. Well, I want to thank our panelists so much. Rima Patel, Augusto Bitter, Aisha Sashajan, and Mia Herrera. And I'm sure we're going to see all of them very soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Aspera Dialogues would like to acknowledge the support of the Ontario Trillium Foundation, the Toronto Arts Council, the Ontario Arts Council, the Winnipeg Foundation, and the Canada Council for the Arts. Other sponsors include the McLean Foundation, the Michael Dechter Foundation, BMO, Manulife, and our individual donors as well. To read everyone's stories, find more episodes of the podcast, and stay up to date with talk events across Canada, go to talkmagazine.ca. Thanks for listening.